I've been coming here a long time, and so it's lovely to have to introduce myself, uh, which means there are a lot of new folks here, which is a real joy. Apologies to those who know more and have heard it before, but there we go. It's good to be here. Can I just encourage you to pray for and look after your leaders? Um, it's an opportunity when there's a visiting preacher to put this plug in. I have more friends and peers in ministry who have left ministry in the last year than in all of my ministry experience. And churches are really going through turmoil up and down the country at the moment. And so please be looking after your own leaders through this time. Some of that, I think, is because COVID was a really difficult time and church leaders worked really hard to look after folks who were going through a difficult time. And then as we emerge from COVID, it's still a difficult time and church leaders are still trying to look after everyone going through a difficult time. But who's looking after the church leaders? And so, uh, even in our network here in North and West Yorkshire, three church leaders have gone in the last year. Um, and we really do need to look after our church leaders. So you won't get that from Chris ever. So while he's away, let me just put that plug in. Look after Chris and his family. And, and also your elders. Living in church at the moment is really tough. And we need lots of grace and wisdom. Having said that, I'm going to pray and we'll dive into today's passage. Father, we thank you so much that in a changing world where so much seems in turmoil, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your word endures forever. We thank you that as we come now to open that word, this is the word that was written and will remain even though heaven and earth will pass away. And so we thank you that we come to something secure and solid this morning, and we pray then that you nourish us with these truths, point us to the Lord Jesus. When I arrived in Crossfields 12 years ago um, with my two daughters, I left my wife and my oldest daughter back at home um, for a week or two um, and finding my way around the village. The primary school that my daughters were going to attend had a big banner outside saying Yorkshire's, I think North Yorkshire's first rights respecting school was an award they'd won. Um, Being quite naive and a little bit bolshy, when I went in to meet the teachers, I said, I hope you teach them some responsibilities as well as rights. Um, But rights is a big thing. We live in a world with rights, and we are very grateful that we have rights. Rights protect our freedom. Uh, Rights um, look after us. The the, the UN Statement on Human Rights is great. We live in a culture now where rights is our rights. And rights are preeminent. And we think about life in the lens of my rights. As we come to 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, that's exactly what's going on in the life of the church. So I don't know if you noticed in our reading, um, but in the middle of it, Paul says that uh, the danger is that their rights, verse 9, has become a stumbling block to the weak. So, so what's being addressed in 1 Corinthians 8, which I'll explain in a moment in terms of eating food offered to idols, might seem very strange to us, that's weird. But actually the issue of rights bang up to date, and we'll link the two, and you'll see how those fit together. Let me introduce you to, to the chapter of a fictional story, though, about two men in Corinth, uh, to help them understand some of what's going on. Uh, Gaius is a convert. Uh, he's come to know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Corinthian. He's come from an idol-worshipping background, uh, where the whole of his life revolved around the different idols in town, and now he's come to be a follower of Jesus. He's come to see that there's one true and living God, and that Jesus uh, is... God and has come to rescue us and he's rejoicing in that rescue. And then one day he gets a birthday invite from his best friend. It's an invitation to his best friend's daughter's first birthday. And we have many of these invitations actually still lying around, so although this is a fictional story, Caraman requests he will accompany the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapeum tomorrow where the first birthday of a daughter is to be celebrated at a meal. 
Christ is delighted. This is wonderful. His best friends had a daughter. She's one. It's her birthday party. He wants to go. But it's the temple. The Serapeum is the temple worshipping the god Serapis. And at that meal, uh, there will be a sacrifice to the god Serapis. Uh, and it will be in the context of the worship of Serapis. But that's where the birthday party is happening. What does Gaius do? It's really difficult. It's his best friend. It's a, it's a birthday party. It's a social function. But it's tied into the temple worship. So he's chewing over this as he uh, walks back um, home. And he's wandering through the market. Um, he uh, sees all the beautiful stalls and he's thinking about tea. He's just thinking about a birthday party. Naturally, he's thinking about food. And he sees a lovely joint of lamb hanging up in the butcher's shop. And he's right. We're going to enjoy that tea. And so as he goes to purchase it, the butcher says, yeah, we are the best stalling the market. All our stuff is offered to the God Poseidon. Now the guy's just got a problem. I do. Because actually all the meat in the market, no matter which stall is, is on, is offered to the gods. That's how meat gets into the, the market system. The leftovers from the sacrificial rites are, are sold in the market. And guys isn't sure what to do. He's a follower of Jesus. Does he want something that's been offered to Poseidon? So as he's scratching his head with this dilemma, do I go to the birthday party and, oh, that lamb looks so nice, what do I do? He gets home and his wife says to him, guys, it's wonderful, we'll be invited to a friend's house tomorrow for a meal. So guys, it's really looking forward to this, and they toddle over to their friends the following day, and as they sit down to a sumptuous friend, you can hear what's coming, can't you? And they're about to eat this meal, someone says, look at this pork, isn't it great? It's offered at the goddess, the temple of Artemis. Eat this or not? And so he goes vegan for the night and just eats the vegetables. And guys has got a real problem because actually temple worship is connected to everything in Corinth, and so the whole of his social life has been connected to that, even down to what he eats. And as a Christian now, he's trying to work out how do I follow Jesus in this culture? And it's got a real dilemma. And then as he's pondering this, wrestling with it, he comes up with a solution. It's obvious. It's only one God. There's only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. All the others are made up. They're fictional. They're not real. And this is his moment of release. It's fine. Poseidon and Artemis, they're all fictions of people's imagination. They're not real. And so that doesn't matter. I can eat food because I was a nothing. And so I'll go to the birthday party of my friend's daughter. I'll, I'll go and buy that joint of lamb in the market. And we're off to our friends and I'm going to enjoy the meal because there's only one true God. And so I don't need to worry about food off its idols. Gaius has got a solution to his problem. So Gaius now begins to enjoy all of those things with a clear conscience, because he knows that Poseidon and Artemis and the others don't exist. The difficulty is at church, there's another man called Demetrius. Demetrius has only just come to faith in Christ. He's been saved from the similar background of worshipping the idols. And Demetrius is trying to work out the same questions. But as he sees Gaius with this freedom of conscience coming to this clear conviction that those idols don't exist, and going enjoying all those social functions of the temples, Demetrius begins to think, well, Gaius is a mature believer. He's doing that. It must be okay for me to do it. The difficulty for Demetrius being a more recent convert, he's not so clear that the other gods don't exist. He spent his whole life worshipping in those temples, believing that he's praying to Poseidon or Artemis, believing in fact that they've answered his prayers at points. So Demetrius is much more uncertain about the clarity. 
over the coming weeks, as Gaius is enjoying his rights to go and enjoy those things, because those gods don't exist, Demetrius is appearing less and less in church. Demetrius has been drawn back into the temple worship that he just professed to be saved from, because it's also real to him, and he's torn, and he's drawn back, and now Demetrius has stopped coming to church. Because trying to make that distinction was too and that's the background to what's going on in 1 Corinthians. This whole issue of how do you live for Jesus in a culture which is so embedded in the idolatry, and how do you separate these things out? And what I want us to see this morning is all works. Right, that's all right. That means you don't have to worry about the cooking. It just means you've got to follow more carefully, okay? This morning I want us to see that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We've got that in verse 1 chapter 8. And so what I want to do is track, track through chapter 8 and look at what knowledge does, and then track, track through chapter 8 again and look at what love does, and see how those contrast. So let's look at knowledge in chapter 8 and see what it does. Uh, what is it that they know, verses 4 to 6? Um, as Paul is responding in this letter, it's quite probable that the Corinthians had already written to Paul about this whole issue of idolatry. And so can you see in verse 4 that in italics he says, we know that an idol has no real existence. That probably means he's quoting from their original letter. And that there is no God but one. Here's what we know. Those idols aren't real. There's only one God. And if there's only one God, all those others don't exist. There's no real existence to those idols. That's what they they know. They're, They're clear about But the reality around verse 5 is that there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. We know from the the, um, archaeology in Corinth that they worshipped, is the next you read, Kronos, Poseidon, the sun, the coral, the sea, Aphrodite, Artemis, Isis, Dionysius, a tree, watch how that one's on there, Fortune, Apollo, Hermes, Zeus, Asclepius, Unaya, and that's just the ones we have the list of. So Corinth is just riddled with temples to all these different gods. Paul is saying they're all around you. There are many lords and gods, but actually we know that they have no real existence. So he's confirming the Corinthians in the convictions they've come to. These gods mean nothing. They are nothing. And he confirms that in that by reminding them in verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's been very clever here. He's taking us back to Deuteronomy 6, the, the, the statement that the Jews made, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. But as he talks about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he shows Christian understanding that God, uh, uh, the Father and Jesus are both God. Two persons in the Trinity, Holy Spirit's not mentioned here. One God in three persons, and, and, and Paul is showing us that. And, and what does he say? Can you see about the Father? And uh, as, uh, as this was being read, it's, it's difficult because of the way it keeps changing the language. The Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. Paul is saying, you know, don't you, that everything that you can see, and everything you can't see that surrounds you, only one God. The one God who spoke everything into being. He used to use as, as an illustration to the children lots of times, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could say, let there be light and there was. 
because that illustration doesn't work anymore, because if you've got Alexa, you can walk in and say, lights on, and it happens. <laughs> but but you, you understand, don't you, that with Christians, we believe that there's one God who made everything. He's the source of everything. You can't have multiple gods at that level. There's only one. He, he made everything. So I'm driving across through the, the countryside from South Craven. It, it's just gorgeous to look at the hills and all the animals in that. I love going up into quiet spaces in the hills where there are no other human beings and thinking there are millions of life forms just around me now. And this is all sustained and no one knows about it. We're not responsible for it. We don't do anything to help it. In fact, usually we're doing things to damage it. God's made all of that and he's sustaining all of that. It's all come from him. There's only one God, says Paul. And because of that then, because everything comes from him, everything exists for him, can you see in verse 6. We used to joke when we were children that everything was made in China. You go to London and buy a red bus as a reminder of your tourist visit, you turn it upside down and say made in China. Everything came from China, it belonged to China. There's a sense in which, because God has made us, there's a little stamp on our feet that says, made by God. He owns us because he made everything, and therefore we exist for him. We've come from him, and we exist for him. Everything is for the glory of God. So here's the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And then there's the Lord Jesus, and notice how the language changes, through whom are all things. So when we're told that God spoke the word, let that be, be light, John tells us the word was with God, the word was God at the beginning. Jesus Christ, who we celebrate being born 2,000 years ago, was actually there at the beginning, and through him, everything came into being. He is the word of God who brought creation into being. And Jesus is the channel through which life has come in the beginning. But notice how also it says, and through whom we exist. Who is it that sustains us? Every breath you take, every time those red blood cells pass through your body, who's in control of all of that? But more than that, if we have spiritual life, if we've been born again, that's come through Jesus. We exist in this new spiritual life through Jesus. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, well done, you've got it. You've got your theology sorted. There is only one God. Poseidon didn't have any contribution. Notice they had to worship the sun and the sea because they, they got these mini-gods that had different bits. No, there's only one God. He's over everything. You don't need different gods. He's made everything. And it's come from him and for him. Through Jesus, we exist uh, through him. You've got your theology right, says Paul. But then he says that, that what happens when you get your theology right, can you see in verse 1? Knowledge puffs up. You've understood it correctly, but the result in you is an arrogance. As one commentator put it, once, once theology is properly in hand, it's especially tempting to use it as a club on others. Lots in Christian churches. People get a bit of knowledge theologically, and they go around beating everyone else over the head who hasn't quite got that knowledge yet until they've submitted to the greater brain of the theologian. But Paul says here that the danger is that once you get knowledge, it, it puffs up. There's a problem with knowledge, he says in verse 2. When you learn something, you actually find out you've got more to learn. Notice that. <coughs> Some of you all are nodding, you know. The more you learn, the more you realise you didn't know in the first place, and there's more to do. And as the scientists are rejoicing in the latest telescope that is travelling out through the universe, and they are discovering new vistas and confirming or changing theories that they had, 
further they go, the more they realise there is they haven't even looked at yet, didn't even know exists. And so there's there's more to know. And that's the problem with knowledge. Can you see in verse in verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. The more you learn, the more you realise that there's more to learn. That, that's the problem with knowledge. And so it's all very well being tempted to look down on others who haven't got it yet, but actually where do they look there either? Knowledge is, is good, we need to understand Christian truth. There's always more to learn. So what knowledge does is it puffs up. But the, the second thing is that in verse 7 and 8, not everyone's got this knowledge. Paul says in, in verse 7, there are some folks who haven't come to this clarity of understanding that those other gods don't exist. They still genuinely believe, even though they've come to faith in Christ, they genuinely believe that there's a Poseidon. They genuinely believe there's an Artemis. And so they're in this, this growing phase of coming to understand Christian truth, but they haven't got there yet. And so while you have achieved that knowledge, they've not got there yet. They've not got that clarity. You can't just beat them over and say, this is true. They need to understand that for themselves. They need to, to process it and work it through. So Paul says, not everyone's got the knowledge you've got. But now what he's, see what he says. Verses 1 to 3, knowledge puffs up and it, it's incomplete. Not everyone's got it, verses 7 and 8. Thirdly, knowledge destroys and leads to sin, verses 11 and 12. You see verse 11, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So just stop here for a moment and think. They've got this great true knowledge about God the Father and God the Son. They've understood with clarity this Christian doctrine. And what's it doing? It's destroying their brother, causing them to sin against their brother and against Christ. That's where their knowledge has led them. And I don't want to open up a can of worms, but in verse 11, the word destroyed here is the word that Paul usually used, uses to describe someone who is eternally lost. That's how serious he's taking it here. In the story of Demetrius, who seemed to profess faith and come along to church and then sees Gaius happily worshiping the idol temples and going back then, and he's no longer in church. He's not following Jesus anymore. He's turned back from following Jesus. Paul says that's how serious this is. How your, your use of that knowledge, that true knowledge, has actually destroyed someone who was coming to Christ and coming to church and is no longer coming. You're, you're eating idle meat. Your, your right to do that, says Paul, is not sin. So other gods don't exist. But you're standing on your right and being determined to do that actually has meant that your brother has been led into sin therefore sinned against them and against Christ. Can you see how frightening this is in some ways? Someone has come to clarity on understanding Father and Son. That's really difficult when you think about the Trinity. They've come to clarity on one God from whom everything exists. That's difficult in our world, where we believe in evolution and, and no supernatural. They've come to clarity on Jesus being essential to us having life, physical life and spiritual life. Yet, with that knowledge, they've caused someone else to stop following Jesus. And the God they're professing to worship, they're actually sinning against one of the way they treated that brother in Christ. 
Christ. See, knowledge is not bad, it's good, but it's not enough. And Paul wants them to understand here that the, the basis of their ethics is not knowledge alone. Reading clever books that give you an understanding of ethics isn't enough. Knowledge isn't enough. In Corinth, their conduct was based on their knowledge and a knowledge that led them to rights. I know, I can do. You're thick, you don't know, you'll get there one day, but I do know, and I can do, and I'm going to do, See, their emphasis is totally wrong in Corinth. It's all about knowledge for them. Paul is saying, no, it's all about love. Knowledge on its own puffs up. Knowledge on its own destroys. Knowledge on its own leads to sin. So let's go back through chapter 8 now and see the difference that love makes. Verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul says love has a completely different impact when it's lived out. Knowledge swells your head. Knowledge makes you arrogant. This language of puffing up is like a balloon. Puff, 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 puff. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But what's it full of? Hot air. And where's it going? Bang! Or, when the stopper comes out, <laughs> and all you're left is with a sort of rubbery stuff at the end. That's all knowledge does. But look what love does. Love builds up. Love constructs. Love leaves something lasting. Love benefits. Love strengthens. It is the image of something insubstantial, which is just full of hot air, compared with something which is lasting and solid. And Paul says, that's what love does. That love isn't just internally self-inflating. Love reaches out and benefits others to the whole. It's strengthened. Love builds up. And secondly, verse 3, love is relationship. You see verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The problem with knowledge is the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. And actually it's kind of exponential, isn't it? So you, you, you get so much knowledge and you just say, there's that much more to know. And then you learn that much more and then you think, there's that much more to know. So the more you know, the more you think, actually, I really think. So I really don't know anything. What does Paul say about love, though? If you love God... say how much love you've got to have, a little bit of love for God is enough to land you known by God, and the word there known is love drawn into relationship. Folks, you can have all the knowledge in the world and still be very unintelligent. You can have a little bit of love for God, and you are eternally secure, because he knows you, and he loves you. You can be very unintelligent in terms of Christian doctrine, but a little bit of love for God, and you're secure in His knowledge. Paul says, Love is just wonderful. Love is just wonderful. Even a little bit of love for God is enough. Oh, there's more to learn, there's more to grow into. But the more you learn, the more you love in return for God's love. It's like the security of diving into the ever deepening. Deepening waters and enjoying rather than feeling active your death. So love builds up, love is relationship. Verse 8. Love brings us near to God when food doesn't. Paul has to say to them, look, if 
through your theological learning, and through all this wonderful freedom you have now with this right to go and celebrate your friend's daughter's first birthday, because Poseidon's meat, Poseidon is nothing, so the meat after him is, is not tainted, it's okay. But actually that realisation and that enjoyment doesn't benefit your relationship with God one bit. It doesn't make a blind bit of difference. You see, we're no worse off if we do not eat. That brother or sister that you're looking down on and thinking they're so fit theologically, they haven't worked that yet, they really believe the scientists, how daft they are. Paul says, actually, if they don't go and eat that, they're no worse off. It make a blind bit of difference to their relationship with the Lord. And, and by the way, you're no better off if you do. You've got all that knowledge, you think you've got that freedom, but you're going to enjoy that birthday party. It doesn't advance your relationship with God one bit. It doesn't bring you any closer to God one bit. The food you eat doesn't affect your relationship with God. Love this. Love him. Love others. That's the heart of what Jesus has come to command us and to invite us into. The very things we couldn't do until he laid down his life and rescued us. Get a new life in the spirit. The heart of everything. Love for God. Love for others. That's what brings us near to God. And so then verse 11, love considers brothers and sisters for whom we died. Knowledge says, I've got rights, I'll do as I please. Love says, no, 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 no. I'm concerned about my brother or sister. Can you see verse 9? Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Love leads to careful consideration of others. And if we're going to be considerate towards others, what does that mean? We need to know them. How would Gaius know that going to the temple and enjoying his friend's daughter's birthday would lead Demetrius into sin? Well, he seemed to have sat and talked to Demetrius over coffee after church. They did that in their context, or whatever it was they were drinking. And say to him, how are you doing? And how's your journey to following Christ? And you're struggling with the old ways. Five o'clock. I need to be careful here. Care needs relationship. It needs knowledge. Knowledge needs time. It needs developing. If you treat church like cinema, where you come for the event and you go home, you will never ever be able to grow in love for anyone. So you won't know them. You can't love others you don't know them, spend time with them. And what is it that fuels all that? Why should you be bothered about the other people here? Why should you want to give them time? Well, because they're the ones for whom, verse 11, Christ died. What? The people around you this morning who are following Jesus and trusting in him were known by God before he created them. Loved by God before he made anything else. We're so loved by God that even though their life's been a train wreck, you haven't seen all the wreckage, but inside it's a complete mess, God sent his son to die for them. Well before they even existed. God in his grace then sent his spirit to bring them to life. God so loves them that the Lord Jesus Christ left his throne of glory where he had every right to sit and enjoy the splendor and the accolade this earth as a human being, not on a palace throne, but in poverty, under scandal, single mother, living
living as a refugee in another country, growing up as a carpenter in a menial task, growing up in the north of the country, all of us who live up here know the problems of living up north, and then being rejected by his own, went to the cross. Jesus willingly did that. Jesus was stopped to keep up as he relates to each other. That's how much God loves them. So if you are loving God and receiving his love, suddenly you're going to be wanting to look around and say, wow, they must be really special. How can I then love them and take care of them? Because when I sin against them, I sin against the Lord Jesus Christ, who I say I love. Who I proclaim has loved me. So can I really behave like that towards them? And then what's the conclusion of verse 13? Love then, as it realises these things, is willing to give up rights to benefit others. Verse 13. And folks, I find this verse pretty difficult. Some people will find it very natural because in Ilkley there's a vegan shop and many of you might not eat meat. But for someone like me, who really enjoys looking forward to roasting it when he gets home, Paul says, if food made to my brother's stomach, I'll never eat meat. My right, my freedom to all sorts of activities that are not in themselves sinful. Paul says, I'm having to put those to one side. It's for not leading someone else into sin. Now, please be clear here that Paul is talking about leading others into sin, not offending them or upsetting them. So I'm not going to stop eating meat because someone else has decided they're going to be a vegetarian. That's fine, you're welcome to be a vegetarian, I'll continue to eat meat. But actually, if my decision to, to a particular behaviour means that you are being led into sin, I'm going to willingly stop that. So this chapter is not licensed for everyone saying, oh, I'm offended if you drive a car with I don't know, a petrol engine, or, you know, I'm offended by also. That would just cause chaos in the congregation, you will not be able to move. It's selfishness, actually. I'm offended. <coughs> but actually, if I'm concerned for my brothers and sisters' spiritual welfare, whatever rights and freedoms I might have, I'm going to happily lay aside. What's the benefit of me having a right and a freedom for my brother or sister is the school? So the aim of Christian ethics then is not proper knowledge, we need proper knowledge. The aim is, is love. What has Jesus come to do to enable us to love God and love one another? What is the problem with sin? I don't really have all the knowledge, they just turn against it. Sin leads us to rebel against God and hate God and rebel against each other and hate each other. Jesus has come to put all that right. So our knowledge of the gospel, our knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, our knowledge of the true God should lead us to love him and love others. And folks, while I don't suspect you have a major problem with eating meat Bibles as a church, this reality has a massive impact on the way we do church. Because in the West, we are consumers. Everything is our about what I want and how I want it and what I expect. And we go away from church marking the card out of ten. The music and the preacher and the coffee and everything else. And that's our default mode. Paul said that stinks. Actually, church is about coming with brothers and sisters in Christ to love each other. So if I come this morning thinking, how can I benefit folks at all? Who can I speak to that needs encouragement? You know, I 
know who I might be really unhelpful to because I don't know them. So I'm going to have coffee with them afterwards and make sure that I get to know them a little bit better and I'm not behaving in some stupid way, pushing them away from Jesus. Can you see it just turns church upside down and makes church utterly different from the world in which we live, which is a selfish, I'm world. Paul says, rights are good, knowledge is good, without love, loved us. God has loved us so much he sent his son. Let's learn that love. Let's learn to love one another.